As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realised it's not just the story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy to use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. Uh, you have, as always, just heard an advert for the Page One Notebook, the writer's notebook that we've designed. It's still available. If you just click the link in the bio, you'll be taken to that. Um, but this week we've got a very special guest. We do indeed. Peter James is yes. on this week. The international best-selling author. I think his latest book, Dead at First Sight, has just gone in number one as well. Yeah. So Crazy run of number one hits this man yeah, has. Yeah. yeah. So he's, he's best known for, uh, I think, uh, the Roy Grace crime novels. I think, has he done... 15 of those. 15, I think that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Dead at First Sight is the most recent, but he's not just crime. He's done horror. He's done sort of, his book before this one was Absolute Proof, which we discuss in the podcast, yeah. which is a sort of Dan Brown thriller, sort of religious based, but as I say, a thriller. And we talk about that and the Roy Grace books, which is really interesting actually. Yeah. What he said, what he has to say about the Roy Grace books, but we'll chat about that after the podcast. But it's, it's a really fun chat we have with him. He's a really nice guy, and we'll catch up with you guys afterwards at the end. Yeah, speak to you later. Always wanted to be a writer right from the age of seven. Mm-hmm. I used to kind of keep a, a little red notebook by my bedside when I was a kid and uh, put my great thoughts. I think the first thing I ever wrote down was... Life is a bowl of custard. It's all right until we fall in. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't used that yet in the book, but hey, you know, one day. <laughs> I, I, and I was an obsessive letter writer. I, I was always writing to my favorite authors. I wrote to Enid Blyton, and I, I had a monitor. I said, I just read Five Good Treasure Island, where they'd spent seven days on this island, and none of the kids had gone to the toilet in all that time. <laughs> <laughs> and I was very worried, and... She wrote a nice letter back saying, well, they had gone. She just left those bits out because she didn't think little boys and girls were interested. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I never had any confidence as a kid at all. I, I never ever thought I'd be a, ever be a published author. And I, I, to, I remember when I was about 13 in an English class and I just struggled to hand in like a three-page essay and I picked up a novel and I thought, how on earth could anybody write Mm-hmm. 400 pages when I struggle like for a week to write three miserable pages um, and then I, I have one teacher when I was at Charterhouse who kind of just believed in me and encouraged me and I won the school poetry prize when I was 15 which was, was which was to have an interesting impact some years later because I wanted to go to Oxford to to read English 
And then the first film school opened up in England, the first film and television school at Ravensbourne. And I, I never believed I would be able to make a living as a writer. So I thought, well, maybe I'll go into film and television because at least I can kind of get a kind of paid job there and maybe write in, write in the evenings. And I, I wrote, I had written at this point, I'd written three novels in my kind of, I read the, the Great British Novel when I was 19, but luckily I never got published. <laughs> he got me an agent in New York. Oh, wow. Um, and he kind of really liked the first book. and But it took about a year and a half because I'd done all the rounds, got rejected by everybody in England. And I got, first of all, did the round of all literary agents and then all the publishers. And then a friend of mine read it and said, oh, it's quite American in field, so I, I got the Writers and Artists Yearbook and just mm-hmm. picked out this entry, a guy called Kurt Helmer in New York, and I sent it to him, and I got this glowing, like, six-page AML letter back, which you got in those days. This is 1969. Um, and I got really excited, and at that point I'd written a second novel, and I sent that to him. He said, no, 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 let's go back to the first one. Mm-hmm. Um and I kind of, I then went out to Canada and I sort of, I was trying to do some work on it, but I'd sort of semi-parked it. And I went out to Canada because I came out of film school in 1970. It was impossible to get a job in England in film and television. Mm-hmm. Film business was, was in its usual state of being down the Kazi. And, and television, there were only two channels. Yeah, of course. You know? <laughs> To join ITV, you had to do be born into a union family. It was a closed shop. Right. Oh, right. BBC, you had to sign up to like a six-year graduate scheme. <laughs> and I had an uncle in Canada, a brilliant guy, um, and he just said, come out here, it's all happening. So I went out and I got a job on a, with a television station as part of CBC, and it was a daily program for preschool children called Polka Dot Door. Uh, and I was the gopher, you know, the lowest human life form on the planet. <laughs> Literally going for this and going for that. And, and it was like a puppet show that went out at about quarter to eight in the morning. And it was like six bad-tempered puppets go for a polka dot hole in a door and do stuff for kids. Yeah. Um, and I'd been on this show for about two months, and the producer came in a panic one day and said, uh, the writer's sick. He's meant to have brought a, a script in this morning. He hasn't turned up. There's no no script. We don't have a show. Uh, I just read your CV. You won your school poetry prize. <laughs> you write today's show. And they stuck me in a corner with, a, with an old IBM Selectric golf ball typewriter. And, and I kind of, I wrote the show and they liked it. And I, I got, I wrote it for the next year, year and a half, about three days a week. Brilliant. And it's, um, apart from, the fact that I was, you know, 22 years old and, and making, for me, a fortune, um, a relative fortune, it taught me the discipline of, of you know, I had to rock up yeah. when it, with a script. It wasn't an option, you know, no matter how smashed or drunk I got the night before. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there wasn't any delaying it. And, 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 I, I kind of, and that was really my kind of first writing break. And, and from that, did you... Well, that, that, Sorry. Yeah, well, that, yeah. I contacted my agent in New York and I said, you know, this is great news. I've got this fantastic writing job. And he, uh, I, I wrote to him because in those days that's how you did it. And he wrote back and he said, you asshole. <laughs> he said, you want to be a novelist? 
And, and you seriously think you're going to sit down all day and write television scripts. And then you're going to go home in your free time and write a novel. He said, forget it. Go work in a library or in a factory or something. Just do something dumb that you, that's not going to take your brain up. Uh-huh. And did you and listen I, to that? <laughs> I, well, I, I didn't at the time because – but then I – it was like six years later, and I and I had not written another word of a novel, and uh, and I met my then wife to be, and she said, you know, when are you going to write this this novel you've always talked about? And I realised that you know I'd got suckered from there into the, into the film business, and I'd been making kind of writing, producing film. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was an article in the Times, I think it was, that said there was a shortage of spy thrillers. This was about nineteen seventy. I'm trying to think that it was 70s, about 75, 76, around about then, 77. Ian Fleming had died. And I thought I could write a spy thriller. So I, I made it all up. Um, <laughs> uh, it was a kind of slightly tongue in cheek. It wasn't a spoof, but it was a little bit tongue in cheek. And, and I wrote this novel called uh, Dead Letter Drop and to my absolute amazement. Well, I sent it to my agent, to Kurt Helmer. Didn't hear back from him. And uh, I waited a month, I waited two months, then I phoned and found out he, he died four years earlier. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> How rude. I was the only person to be represented by a dead agent. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened with that then? Then I, I got another agent, a new agent in England, and to my absolute amazement, he got it published, and... It came out in 1981, and, and to my even bigger amazement, it didn't sell. <laughs> <laughs> I think it sold about 1,800 copies, of which about 1,500 went to libraries. And I had a two-book deal, and I, I wrote a second one called Atombaum Angel, which was a thriller set in the nuclear power industry. About a, I learned a big lesson from this book, because this was... I, I did a lot of research in, in the UK about the nuclear power industry, and the basic premise was it was a son of a, a uranium miner in Namibia whose dad dies of cancer, and his son is angry at the way his dad's been treated, and he decides to come to England and blow up a nuclear power station to avenge his dad's death, right. as he did. As he did. <laughs> and I had some key scenes. I had to write. I had some key scenes set in Namibia. And I couldn't afford to go there at that time. And so I kind of, I, I got it all from libraries and I, I didn't, I met somebody who'd been there and talked to them about it. And I remember the book came out, it, it got a lot of publicity because it was a hot topic, the whole nuclear about mm-hmm. And the first interview I did was this female journalist and she said, so, you know, what was it like in Namibia? And I said, oh, you know, it was hot and a lot of sand. <laughs> <laughs> and, that was that was a big moment for me because I realised right then and there that I that I just lied to this lady, uh, and not only that, that I actually I'd lied to all my readers, and I kind of vowed from that point never again to write anything that I hadn't experienced. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's a lesson that I, I tell all kind of budding authors is you've got to understand and know inside out and backwards any detail that you're writing about mm-hmm. because readers can tell. If, if if you do if the author knows or doesn't know their subject, so I suppose that's very much like the the sort of write what you know idea, um, totally. Which, which we've spoken to other people about yeah. as well, and I think sometimes what they say is it's not 
you know, if you've only worked in an office, you don't need to only write office books, but take what you know from that and and put that into your book because that's the bit that will come across as a credible a credible thing. Yeah, I completely agree. I around that time, the Atom Bomb Angel came out and it did just as badly as the previous. <laughs> Um, and I poured my heart out to a, a lady called Elizabeth Buchan, who at that time was writing the jacket blurg for Penguin, but she's now become a really successful novelist in her own right. And she, she said, darling, what on earth are you doing writing spy thrillers? What can you ever know about the world of spies? You're up against people like Jean le Carré, mm-hmm. Ted Aubrey, all these guys, Ian Fleming was... Mm-hmm. These guys came out of the security service. Mm-hmm. You are never, ever going to have that access. She says, you've got to write about what you know about and also what you're passionate about, not we, not something you think might solve for money. Mm-hmm. You've got to what you really want to write. And just at that time, we got, I, I recently got married and we got burgled. And a young detective came to the house to take fingerprints. And he saw... My first book, uh, Dead Letters Rock, and he mm-hmm. said, oh, if you ever want your research help with the police, give me a call. And he was married to a detective. Uh, my then wife and I became friends with them. They invited us to a barbecue at their house one, one weekend. And there was like a dozen of their friends there, and they were all cops. And there was homicide, response, oh, traffic, wow. neighborhood protection, socos. And just talking to these people... I got really excited. I suddenly thought, I had one of those moments, and I thought, you know, for a writer, nobody sees more of human life in a 30-year career than a police officer. Yeah. You know, they, they see everything, you know, from a domestic fight to a terrible accident to, to a murder to some terrible, old, sad, lonely old person who's been dead for four months and, and not even her neighbors noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they realized, over the next few years, they became, started becoming friends with more, more and more cops. And they, you know, when they realized I was genuinely interested in what they did, not decided to get a story I could flog to a newspaper, they started inviting me out on patrol with them and, and come spend a day at their office. And it got to a point where they phoned me and said, we've got a good crime scene. Do you want to come and see it? <laughs> and really? so I, I, I was, I was, I, I wrote a, a successful kind of supernatural thriller called Possession, which was kind of part part thriller, part supernatural. And, and then I started um, putting more and more police mm-hmm. scenes in. And in 1996, I was introduced to a young homicide detective in Brighton called Dave Gaylor. And we just hit it off. And, I, and over the next few years, he asked me, he kind of, well, we worked together on, on all the police scenes in my subsequent books. And in 2002, he got promoted to head of major crime for Sussex, basically, the detective chief superintendent. And there was a time when my publishers, Pam McMillan, asked if I'd ever thought of creating a detective as a central character. So I went to Dave and I said, would you like to be a fictional cop? <laughs> <laughs> and he absolutely loved the idea. And from that moment onwards, We've just worked together incredibly closely in terms of planning the books. And we sit down and kind of plan. We, we have a, I get a new moleskin notebook. We have a particular table mm-hmm. in the park that we sit at. Um, and, and we kind of plan out the book. I then go and write the first hundred pages. He then reads it and tells me how Roy Grace and all the other police characters would really think and act. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and over the last 15 books, he's introduced me to police officers around the world. And we've become really close mates. I mean, he was, when I got married again in 2015, he was best man. Um, and he's helped give me that, that authenticity that, for me, is so vital. Yeah, I think that definitely comes across in your books. But do, it, And that's an interesting thing. So you plan the books out with him um, before starting to write them. Did you go to him with an idea and say, what about this, and sort of work it through with him? Or does he sometimes come up and say, well, what about if this happens and Roy can investigate this? Is it is it very much a collaborative thing, or is it very is much? It, he'll say, yeah. I, "You know, I think we ought to have more of Cleo in the next book." Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. um, what? When I first met Dave um, back in 1996, it was I, I was working on a thriller called Denial, a psychological thriller, and he just said, "Tell me about the book you're writing." So I was about halfway through the book, and I told him. He said, "Hang on a sec." I don't think your detective would have done that. And why is your character doing that? I don't think that's that that, that would fit his character. Um, I realized something when I talked today that, I, that I've subsequently noticed over the years, that unlike the homicide detectives we so often see on television, I think the worst one I've ever seen was David Tennant in Broadchurch, <laughs> because he was just rude and arrogant to everybody. Whereas actually the good ones are... Firstly, they're a unique combination of two completely opposing factors. The first is that they are completely anal, mm-hmm. because every major crime is a huge puzzle of hundreds, sometimes thousands of pieces that have been like painstakingly put together over weeks, months, sometimes even years. But equally, so many major crimes are often solved by this clear blue sky thinking. Mm-hmm. So the really good detectives have this very rare character trait of both being extremely anal and extremely creative. And Dave has that in, in, in spades, and he's got a really creative brain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by his own admission, he could never write a book, but he loves coming up with ideas and bouncing them off me, and, and, and some work and some don't work. But it, so it's, it's, it's a real collaboration. And you know, he retired from the force a few years back. He's always refused to charge me a penny. He just loves doing it. Wow. I mean, that's amazing because, because the Roy Grace books, you know, you've written over 15 books, I think now, is it, that, that you've had? And I did, I did wonder how do you manage a series like that where you've got the same, the same person involved in a new crime as it is every book? And how do you come up with new ideas? And is it a case of just going and having a chat about it and, and, and seeing what's, what, what, what haven't we tried writing about next? It, it, it's really, it really varies on the, the, my most recent Dead at First Sight. Um, that came about the, the subject is romance fraud and, and, and with that book I was approached by Sussex Police by, by a senior um, detective superintendent at Sussex Police who said to me we have a real problem not just in Sussex but throughout the UK and the Western world with internet romance fraud mm-hmm. yeah, basically now everybody has a computer in their home and they have a phone and it's impossible to police internet fraud um, in, in the normal manner. And in Sussex over the last five years, the police just been reported £30 million scammed by people who joined online dating agencies wow. and thought they were talking to a real person. Yeah. Um, 
and they, but they reckon the figures actually way higher than that because so many people are embarrassed to report it. And he said, you know, they would be happy to kind of help me. Obviously, they couldn't show me confidential files, but they would show me the figures and, 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 and they would give me as much background as I wanted if I would consider writing a novel about that theme to, to highlight it to oh, wow. other people. So that's how Dead at First Sight came about. And I've had previously, I wrote Dead Tomorrow, which was about the world of organ trafficking. And that again came about when I was approached by the police to talk about, highlight the perils of um, child trafficking. Right. Um, so every now and then there is a sort of direct approach from the police. The Met wanted me to write about the super recognizers, which I've written about actually in, in the past three books. I brought them in to kind of raise, raise awareness of those. Yeah. Um, and it was great. I had an email from a fan recently that said that she'd heard about super recognizers um, from reading uh, Daddy If You Don't and had done the test, found she was one, and is now a career change and is working for the well. <laughs> so, so it sounds um, like there's been a real kind of collaboration between you and the police, which is quite unusual. I've, we've never spoke to anyone or I've never heard of anyone who's having that, that kind of level of kind of back and forth with someone like the police service, which is, which is obviously why they, you have that kind of authenticity. In, in, in your books, which is so so important in a crime novel. I think it is obvious when you read something and you think that's not what a real cop would do and doesn't doesn't sit right with you. Does it does it frustrate you when you uh, you've mentioned Broadchurch, but it, I imagine most police shows have a lot of procedural yeah. <laughs> procedural errors I, and I stuff. shout at the screen and, 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 <laughs> and, and my wife says, Does it matter? And I go, Yes it does <laughs> Um, I can't watch anything if, I, if it's not. I mean, I, I just it loses me because um, I want to when I when I read a book or if I watch a movie or I watch television, I want to be entertained, but also I want to I want to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and if something is so completely wrong, I just, it just loses me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's got to be something pretty exceptional. You know, I mean, line, the first line of duty I actually thought was really good. I like, you know, that's one of the best shows. Valley, the first um, Happy Valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that was brilliant. Yeah, that and that was that really felt authentic to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Line, so, line of duty sort of got bigger and bigger and bigger in its storyline and yeah, kind of more, lost, lost that authenticity. I, I think as right. it's going on. Yeah, it lost me eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the same with bodyguards. You know, I thought body mm-hmm. sort of began at okay, but kind of lost me. But um, I'd rather I'd rather watch non-fiction documentaries on. on you know, I love just watching the shows with the cameras and police cars. And, yeah, yeah. You know, for me, that's that, that's much more real. And you've and you've you've done obviously a lot of crime. Is what that's what you kind of maybe best known for to a lot of people. But you've got you've done a lot of non crime stories as well. You've done Cold Hill as a horror and Absolute Proof. Your latest one is more of a Dan Brown type adventure. And is it quite important to you to branch out from crime and to do something to kind of you know reset your palate? Yes, and there are certain stories that I want to write that wouldn't work properly within the framework of, of a Roy Gray's crime novel. Mm-hmm. And Absolute Proof, which you just mentioned, was was, was, a, was a class example. And it's, it's a book that I've spent 28 years working on. Mm-hmm. I had a phone call back in 1989 from an elderly guy saying, is that Peter James, the author? Uh, <laughs> and a lot of people said to me, why didn't you hang up then and there? And I said, 
if I hung up, I wouldn't have written the book. You know, I, I do believe, as a writer, it's really important to, to bear in mind that everybody you ever meet in life has got a story. Yeah. Not, not necessarily a story that's actually going to make a book. But I think everyone, if you can mine it out of them, has had something interesting happen to them. And that's one thing that fascinates me about, about people. So I, you know, I never dismiss anybody unless they're clearly a complete nutcase mm -hmm. in the first 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy sounded sincere. He said, my, he said, my name's Harry Nixon. I, I'm a retired uh, academic. I was a former pilot in the Second World War. I have been given absolute proof of God's existence, and I've been told, you're the man, time to get taken seriously. <laughs> Uh, I don't even know what I would say to that phone call if someone said that to me. Long, long story short, I mean, I, I met with the guy, uh, and he, he really was, I could not dismiss him as a crank. You know, he was extremely sincere. He told me that his wife had recently died of cancer, and before they died, he'd made an agreement with her. He'd go to a medium and try and communicate with her. Mm -hmm. And he'd dutifully done this, and instead of his wife coming through, a male came through who said he was a representative of God, that God was extremely concerned about the state of the world, and I felt that if mankind could have faith in him, reaffirmed it would get us back on an even keel. And he said that the representative of God had given him three pieces of information that nobody on earth knew, and that the writer Peter James was the man who had to get taken seriously. <laughs> uh, and that was the starting point. And, and long story short, I, I went to see a friend of mine who was a at that time, Vicar of Brighton, he went on to become Bishop of Reading and then of Monmouth, Dominic Walker. And I said to him, I said, you know, if somebody actually could prove or claim to have absolute proof mm. God existed, and it was credible, what do you think would happen? And he looked at me and he said, I think they'd be murdered. <laughs> so what would it be? <clears throat> You'd have every different faction, Anglican, Catholic, yeah. Judaic, Islamic churches claiming ownership. You'd have communist countries like China not wanting a hard power usurping their authority. And that was my light bulb moment. I thought, I've got the makings of great. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It's, it's, a, it's, got, it's an amazing uh, hook, as they say, for the yeah. story. Um, and it is a, it's a good book because I'm just reading that just now, actually. I've not finished it, but it's, it's a definite page turner. And also what comes through, I think, as well, goes back to what you were saying about uh, the Roy Grace novels, is that it's clear that You've you've put a lot of time in speaking to people, or uh, you know, doing research in some way, um, to to bring that story to life, and that's that's what that's why you want to keep reading it. I think because it's got that, you know, yeah, that authenticity, and also with a story like that, there is always the thing of, well, that's interesting, and it gives you the opportunity yourself to go off and research it if you're interested in it as well. Uh, yeah. Thank you. I, 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 I realized that to write the book credibly, I had to understand all the world's major religions. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what kind of took me a long time. And I, I just embarked on, over the next 24 years, talking to anybody of any faith, you know, any academic, any, any, I talked to kind of serious senior Muslim clerics, um, rabbis, Catholic, Anglican, and, and many, many atheists as well. Asking them two questions. One, what would it take to convince them that God existed? Mm. What, if anything, sorry, would it take to convince them God existed? And two, what would be the consequences if God was proven to exist? 
Uh, and the book's been a fascinating journey for me. I, I, I learned so much myself. I mean, it's, <clears throat> as you rightly said at the beginning, it, it's a Dan Brown thriller terrain. It's not a religious polemic at all, you know, as no. write a, a great thriller. But I do like to make people think in my writing. Mm-hmm. You know, with that book, I wanted people to really question whether there is a bigger picture or not. Mm-hmm. It was House on Cold Hill. Again, I, that, that came out of... I lived in a haunted house for 10 years. I mean, seriously haunted house. And I, I became fascinated. You know, there's no question that, that the house had at least one serious ghost. For me, the question was, what was it? Mm-hmm. Uh, was it something, was it an intelligence or was it just a, some imprint in the atmosphere? And, uh, in the house of Cold Hill and, and the subsequent stage play, which has been on tour, <clears throat> we did kind of look into that, that whole kind of subject. And I, Every now and then, it's on, I've got a new standalone which is coming out. Uh, I've got the sequel to The House on Cold Hill coming out in October this year. Next year, I've got a, a new standalone thriller coming out. Um, again, which is something that wouldn't have worked within a Roy Grace context. Mm-hmm. And when you when you write these standalones, obviously with the Roy Grace ones, um, you've got uh, uh, Dave, was it, that, that you speak, you can work through the planning stage with. But how how long do you spend? Do you sit down and plan out the the book from start to finish in some detail before you start writing it, or do you sort of have a an idea of where it's going, or maybe the ending is it there and work it out as you write it? Which which are you? Yeah, I like. I mean, it's interesting. Every writer has a different way. Mm-hmm. I think Lee Carl just sits down and writes the first sentence and keeps going. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Deaver, I think, writes a three hundred page outline. <laughs> Uh, I I like to plan the kind of key points of the book, key high points. I like to know the ending, even even if it may change when I get towards it. Mm-hmm. I always want to have. A, I always liken it to getting in a car. I wouldn't get in the car and start driving unless I had some idea where I was going. Yeah. Whether it was to my local supermarket or to John O'Groats or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I tend to plan about the first. 20% of the book in, in some detail. But then I love it when it takes on a life of its own. Yeah. I, I do think planning, for me, planning is important. What's equally important is spontaneity. Yeah. And I often think if I don't surprise myself, I'm not going to surprise my readers. Mm-hmm. I guess it's that old Raymond Chandler maxim, you know, when I can't think whether I write next, but have a guy come through a door with a gun in yeah. his hand. <laughs> but it's a great analogy, that, because... I think that the, the guy coming through the door with a gun in his hand is that surprise, and, and, and it's a surprise that readers love. Mm-hmm. And as as you say, sometimes when when you're writing something, the best for, for me personally, you know the story's working if, as you're writing it, something suddenly pops into yeah. your head, and yeah. it, you're you're as you're surprising yourself in the story. Yeah. I think if, yeah. you, if you plan something too much, I find myself almost bored writing it because I, I know I'm just putting it down again in a different format and it's not surprising enough to me. I think, well, and it comes over as bored writing, I think, when it's, when it's on the page. I completely agree with you. I mean, I remember some years ago I was writing, I think it was um, maybe my third or fourth Ray Grace novel, and I was out with the police one day and we were in Brighton and there's an area of Brighton called The Level where they used to be part a whole load of kind of hippie camper vans. And I said to this cop, it was an undercover cop, and I said, 
why are they allowed to stay there? If I park there for an hour, I'd be ticketed and then towed. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these, are, these guys have been here for weeks. And he said, they're all dealing drugs. We leave them be because we can keep an eye on them. And, you know, I'm gaining a lot of intelligence about who they're talking to, who they're dealing with. And I said, well, what's the kind of typical profile? And I just, I, I suddenly thought, what's the typical profile of somebody living in that life? Mm-hmm. Uh, with his help, uh, in fact, and a, and, a, and a drug dealer he introduced me to in prison, I built up a character called Sp- Skunk, who was living in a trailer van, and he, he just, from nowhere, was 100 pages into the book at this time, he suddenly became a major character in the story. <laughs> and I hadn't thought of him when the plan, and that, and that, I love that when that happens. Yeah. And then and once you've once you've done your your draft, you know, you've done a, a little bit of the planning, you've written the draft. What's the next step for you? How do you do your redrafting? Do you kind of do you do it as you go, or do you like to do it in one take and then go back and start again? Well, I'm a great believer in Hemingway's maxim of write drunk, edit sober. <laughs> <laughs> but so quite seriously, I, I, my best writing time is in the evening, and I find a stiff drinks a great great lubricator. Stiff drink and music get in a zone, um, but I, I rewrite, I read everything the kind of following day, and I'm, I'm ruthless on myself. But I usually find if I write, I try to write a minimum of a thousand words a day. I write that when I edit it, it, often, I, it. I find I expand it more than contract it. When I finish the book, I have an immediate tight team of my wife, with great judgment, Dave Gaylor, and my very long-term PA Linda, who's been with me for many years. Um, a great old friend of mine who's a retired solicitor who's read every book that I've ever written right from the get-go and kind of made comments, <laughs> and they read it. And then we get together and go through everyone's good comments. And, and I trust all their judgments. They all give different input. Um, you know, my wife's great on character. David's really good on police stuff. Then I do a revision, um, and then it goes to my editor and to my agent, and then they will come back with notes, mm-hmm. um, and that's probably about probably about a, a month to six weeks after I've finished the first draft. Um, and that their notes usually take a couple of weeks. Then it goes to what to my copy editor again, who I work with over a long time, and, and she'll drive me nuts by wanting cuts and suggestions, and um, and that's usually about another month. So it's, and then it goes finally to a kind of a, another stage of copy editor. So it's about five months from the time I finish the draft before the book is at page proof state. Yeah, that it sounds it's quite a uh, you know because often writing is thought of as a very solitary thing, and obviously it is when you're actually doing the writing. But um, around that, for you especially, it sounds yeah. like it's a very collaborative process. You've got a lot of input and feedback from people. Yeah, I I think you know the for me the image of the writer in the garret on his own is true. I mean, you know, when I'm writing the book, that's it. It's me and my laptop. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think writing is much more collaborative than people realise, and often people allow. You know, the first stage of collaborism is is the research. Yes, of course. Um, you know, I. I you know, when I was writing um, Dead at First Sight, you know, I had tremendous you know, the collaboration with the police and their 
um, for for prevention unit um, with a private detective I was introduced to who specializes in trying to recover money from romance fraud victims. And this is big money. I mean, people being defrauded out of 40, 100,000, quarter of a million. Wow. One, one lady in Sussex, 4 million pounds. Jeez, that's crazy. I don't know, from a, somebody she thought was a guy online. You can get, you can actually, I've learned, you can go to, you can go to college in Ghana and learn to be an internet scammer. Really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Atka, one of 11 wow. schools, centre of Atka, and learn to be an internet scammer. And listen, by the age of 18, you can have 11 Range Rovers, and, and <laughs> they are making gazillions. That's it's crazy. Yeah. But, so, the collaboration for me is, starts with the research, then my bit, I suppose, is, is writing, writing the, mm-hmm. the core plot. And then the collaboration starts again with the, with the whole edit process. And then, then of course, the collaboration goes on with the, with the whole launch of the book and the marketing and the promotion. You know, I, I think it's probably, it's very different to the days of Charles Dickens when he would, would sit yeah. in his, with a quill yeah. and send it off and, the publisher would kind of just take it on from there. And I suppose that also helps with the issue of... Doing things like this. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I keep part of being an author today. Um, And and I suppose having a team around you like that is is also helpful in the the issue we've talked to other folk about, which was when do you know the novel's finished? You know, there's that temptation to keep going back and doing another draft, another draft, and, and having a Someone say stop! It's it's ready now. It must be a good thing. It is. It's, it is. It's really helpful. And I think you know, things go wrong when you're writing. I mean, I had a really interesting conversation at Crimefest uh, last year. I was standing outside with Martina Cole and Lee Child. And we were just chatting, and I was at about page forty-five on on Dead at First Sight. And I, I get to around something between about forty-five to sixty, and I panic. <laughs> and I think, yeah, this book is no good. <laughs> Got away with it but, you know, before the last 20, 30 odd books I've written, but they're finally going to find out. <laughs> and, I, and I said to Lee and to Martina, I said, Do you guys ever have any moment of self doubt? And both of them said exactly the same and about the same point that, that they both think, Shit, this is not going to be any good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in a way, I, by having my sort of team and you know, saying, no, 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 we, we're enjoying it, you know, keep going, it kind of gives you a, a reason reason to keep going. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it must be nice for everyone who's kind of listening to this to, to know that it's normal to have that fear of, oh, crap, this isn't working or this is rubbish. And, and you know, even big name authors like yourself and Lee Childs, et cetera, have that still with their books that they're writing now. That's not That's not a... As a common thing, which is which is nice to hear. Yeah, and and that it, almost every writer I've ever talked to has that same. I think the day you start to cruise, uh, you know, the day you can say, "Well, actually, I've got my next three books already written, so I'm off to football." Yeah. <laughs> written rubbish. <laughs> yeah, actually, we we spoke to Martin Billingham. He said exactly the same thing. Actually, yeah. if, if he ever speaks to someone and they say, "Oh, this is." This book that I'm writing now, it's going easily. It's great. He thinks, hmm, that's that's probably not a good sign. <laughs> I, I completely agree with Mark. I think, yeah. uh, and I, you know, and I've and I've I've had that conversation with one or two authors, and I thought, hmm, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and their books sort of 
you disappear. I think you, you know, you've, you've got to. I remember when I was a kid, some of my favorite authors, you know, big influences on me in my, in my early days, like Alistair MacLean was one. And, you know, and as he got more and more successful, his books got longer yeah. and, and, and less edited yeah. and lazy. And I've always sort of been determined to try to raise the bar with every book and not, not, not have a cruise. Well, that makes it interesting for you as well, I imagine. You know, giving yourself a challenge with anything yeah. in life is always going to make it more interesting than just sort of, you know... Absolutely, yeah. something out easily. And you obviously started in the world of uh, film and TV um, and then went into novels, but you've also done quite a few stage plays. Some it's, Your books have sort of been adapted into uh, stage plays as well. How, how did that come about? And is that... Uh, Again, a different challenge for you. Do you enjoy that? I absolutely love it. Um, I, 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 the same time as wanting to be a novelist, I, I, I've always loved the live theatre, um, and I, I, I very much wanted to write a play. I, I, I did write a play many years ago, which nearly it was got optioned by um, Robert Fox, who was kind of James and Edward's brother, who's a theatre impresario. And it, it never happened. But I got approached by Josh Andrews, um, who's he's Anthony Andrews' son, and I knew Josh. We worked together a bit in the movie business, and, and he left the film business to make a career as a play producer. And he worked with Bill Kenwright for a while, and we bumped into each other at a party. It must be about eight years ago now. And, and he said, "Oh, we're making a huge success of." Agatha Christie plays. He said, you, you're, you must be, I'm not quite sure whether it's a compliment or not. He said, you must be the nearest thing to a living Agatha Christie. <laughs> <laughs> he said, have you ever thought of having one of your books on the stage? And I said, I would absolutely love to. And we discussed what might work best. And we decided Perfect Murder because it was a five-hander and kind of very concise. So we went out with that and, and Perfect Murder, but we had a first do Les Dennis playing the main role Claire, and Claire Goose. And then we went out again with Shane Ritchie and it was a smash hit both times. And then we, and we put Roy Grace into it actually in a, in a minor role. He wasn't in the original block. And then we did Dead Simple, uh, again, big success. And then two years ago, Not Dead Enough. And then this, this year, uh, the house on Cold Hill, and they've all been hugely successful. And I love it because you can't sit and watch somebody reading your book. It's a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> but I love sitting in the back of the theatre watching the audience. Yeah, that yeah. must be amazing. Yeah. And I've learned, I've learned so much about what they like and what they don't like. Uh, now I think one of the biggest revelations I have was sitting in the back watching Dead Simple and and the sudden realisation in the audience that the beloved, charming, sweet Ashley is actually <laughs> an <entity. Yes. laughs> And and they, you get this you can you can feel the ripple of it's shock but a joy. Mm-hmm. I feel that you know people actually love a female monster. And and I, I look at because obviously dead simple a lot of it is involving is, is involving a man who's locked in a coffin for quite a large part of the story and I, I did wonder how does that work on stage when you know because there's scenes and scenes in the book where it's just him by himself. It was quite funny actually. It was brilliant. The stage we had Jamie Lomaz played 
played um, Michael in, in the adaptation, the first adaptation of it. And literally, we had a two-tier stage, and we had a glass-sided coffin. So and Jamie was like, um, um, the first scene is, is the van arrives in the woods, and uh, really good. They have the van coming towards the auditorium, oh. headlights, trees, and they, they lift the coffin out, uh, and they put Michael in the coffin, and, and, they, and then you lower it into the ground, so it comes into sight for the whole theatre. Really? Um, and then um, the whole, we managed to get the first, first it took about 26 theatre, we got most all the theatres to agree, put all the lights off, even the exit lights for a couple of seconds. Mm-hmm. So when we staged the crash, we had the lights coming towards and Rob's in the van on the walkie-talkie. Yeah, yeah. And there's a scream and this almighty bang. And the audience just shoots themselves. <laughs> but we were in Woking and there was this, and there's, and there's this terrible silence. Um, and Jamie's in the, he's got his walkie-talkie. Um, and he, he obviously hears the crash. And we were in Woking and, he, and, he, and, and, he, and his voice echoes out across the auditorium. He says, where am I? Someone in the audience shouted out, "You're in Woking, mate." <laughs> <laughs> Slightly killed the atmosphere. <laughs> and have you obviously got the stage plays and the novels? Have you got? Um, are you wanting to do go back to the world of film and TV as well? Or? Yeah, Roy is. I can't say too much right right now, but it's it's been really advanced development for television. Oh it? wow. Hopefully, we'll be seeing it come to screens next year. Oh, excellent! That's very cool. Yeah, and they're in, in touch with in really good shape on that. Really, is it is it is the casting kind of who you had in mind when you first wrote him as a as a person? Yes, um, in terms of um, certainly the kind of the, the essence of the character, the, the, the key person that they want, I think would portray him brilliantly. Really, and have you got much involvement in that? Are you are you doing the doing the yeah, scripts? I have. Well, it's being produced by somebody who is a mate of mine. Uh, we've worked together in the past. Um, so I'm, I'm, part of the reason it's taken so long is I've been determined that nobody's going to screw it up. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm really excited about it now. Yeah, no, that's probably so, so it sounds like you've got quite a lot in the pipeline, yeah. as always. So you've got uh, the, the standalone that you that you spoke about, the TV series. Um, is there an... Is, is there another stage play in the pipeline as well? Yeah, we're going to be um, adapting Dead at First Sight, which will be coming on stage 2021. Brilliant. And Perfect Murder is in development as a miniseries in America as well. So oh, they're not wow. perfect people, my, my standalone. Oh, okay, excellent. So, it sounds like it's non-stop. It's great. No, I'm loving it. Yeah, excellent. We always like to wrap up every podcast with a sort of either or uh, quick fire questions of a few things. Um, a real book or an e-book? Real book. <laughs> uh, I, I just love the connection with the author. You get the real book. Mm-hmm. If you hold a book, please if it's a sign book. It's got yeah. that sort of feeling of the author. You're, 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 e-books are great traveling, but mm-hmm. a real book. A robot is my friend. <laughs> um, Luther or Happy Valley? Happy Valley. Uh, TV or cinema? It's a really good question. Um, if you'd asked me that question 10 years ago, I'd say cinema. Mm-hmm. But I think TV is taking the edge now. 
I think that's right. Yeah. Um, and actually, that's what everyone says. Everyone now. seems to say that. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. It's, and, and it's because I, I still love the shared experience of being in a movie theatre. And you know, if you get a really good comedy, you get that wonderful feeling of laughter, or you get a really good scare, that yeah. ripple. Yeah, I think uh-huh. that's right. I think horror works really well in cinema because you have that shared experience of that everyone jumping together type thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, last one, um, we uh, eat in or eating in or going out. Do you know? I genuinely do I like both. I, I I think it's nice to go out. Um, and I, but I think people get very hung up about quality of food. When you go out, I think it's to actually have a nice shared experience with yeah. friends. Yeah. Rather than, rather than they're being more precious about, oh, you know, this steak's not quite tender enough, and I think we do it slightly better than steak. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can get all too, I know, I, I'm, you know, I've, I've written a restaurant column for years, and I think, but I, I believe that restaurants are about camaraderie and friendship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. more than they're about food mm-hmm. I, I think, think that's, that's true I think, I think that's, that's definitely right. yeah. true well it's another score in the column for TV over cinema yeah I know it's it's funny that has it, I, I, I can't I, remember sure anyone saying said, cinema yeah. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know I mean it is because I prefer the cinema I think but I can I think it's, the cinema is getting worse and worse as a place to go. Yeah, in I, terms of talking, I definitely don't go to the cinema as much as I did before. So, although that could have some, something to do with having kids, but <laughs> it's also become more expensive. It's it more expensive, and there is so much good stuff on TV. Yeah, I think that's yeah, what it is. Yeah, that's fair so. enough. But, but I will fight for cinema. I will be the lone voice for cinema <laughs> on this podcast. That's fine. <laughs> um, but it, it was a really good chat with Peter, and yeah. actually really interesting how. The Roy Grace novels yeah. came about and how they still come about it basically sounds like it's a it's a collaborative effort yeah. entirely I've, I've never heard of a, of a of someone like a police force being involved that closely yeah. actually giving ideas for a story that, yeah. was, that was very interesting yeah that yeah for his latest one the, act, the police actually contacted him to, to sort of highlight an issue yeah. in a story yeah. is good but also just uh, his friend Dave that just seems to they they just work it out together. Yeah. They just plan yeah. the novel, and then Peter goes and writes it. So, um, yeah, that, that was unusual. But yeah, good. and also I thought he also had a lot of really good tips and some some really good insight and musings on on writing and and things like don't not being worried if you're if you're feeling it's all going to pop when you're a quarter mm-hmm. of the way in or. You know, and, and, and his tips on redrafting were it, really useful. It's that sort of thing that other, you know, people like Mark Bellingham yeah. and others have said to us that, you know, that imposter syndrome, I think everyone absolutely, gets it. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So when you're reading that draft, it's very easy to think, oh, this just is yeah. it's not working. Yeah. And, you know, if Peter James gets that, oh, there's hope for us all. There's hope for us all. Um, so yeah, hope you enjoyed that. And uh, that uh, episode also marks a slight break in the podcast for us because we've got these notebooks. I don't know if we've spoken about them no, before. I've never heard of it. Yeah. You mentioned a notebook before. Yeah, no, podcast. doing this little project page one. Oh, tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so we've got to concentrate on the production for that. And we're also going to line up many more authors to speak to and writers, uh, screenwriters, etc. So, um, There'll be a few weeks break. Uh, we're hoping to come back around sort of August time. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you follow us on Twitter, 
or our Facebook page, uh, you'll, you'll find us there. We're at right underscore gear on Twitter and Facebook. I think if you just, I think we're, uh, right underscore gear UK, I think. Yeah. I think that's, that's right. right. It's certainly if you search for right gear, you'll see our logo on Facebook. Um, and as always, you can send us a, a question or a query to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or if you know any authors that would like to be on yeah. or if you want Mr Stephen King if you're listening you're <laughs> welcome on anytime <laughs> or if you want to uh, yeah if you've got any suggestions for people you'd like to hear from uh, we'd love to hear that um, and we'll we'll see what we can do yeah but in the meantime hope you have uh, productive writing if, if that's why you listen to this podcast. I want one book from every listener before we start season two. Indeed. And uh, as always, we'll leave you with a, a few words about the Page One Notebook. And we'll speak to you again in August. See you later. See you. The Blank Page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. We've created three editions of Page One, Standard, Premium, and Exclusive Kickstarter Edition. Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story, we truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with Page One.